What are we going to talk about today? Is it today a special day of some kind? Resurrection Sunday. Well, can you make correct decisions with little light and bad decisions with a lot of light? You've got to think about it. I mean, are there some people who make right decisions with just a little light and some people make bad decisions with a lot of light? Yeah, I think so. Well, what is so important about the resurrection? Why is it so important? All of our hopes, everything that we say, think, and do, we've changed our whole lives just because we believe in the resurrection. We believe that. Because we do, it's got to have a reason, a purpose behind it. What makes it so important? Turning the Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew and chapter 12. Interesting portion of scripture. We've looked at it before. There's not much in the Bible we can look at for the first time. Because if you've ever been through it once, you've been through it. It's just a matter of going back over some of the things that you've already known and studied. and See what God's word has to say. Look in verse 38, Matthew chapter 12. Chapter 12. There's several things that I want to just uh, read a few scriptures and make a few comments on. Here in verse 38, it makes this statement. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Oh, what kind of a sign do you think they were looking for? What kind of a sign were they looking for? They wanted a sign. Why did they want a sign? They didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. They want to see a sign. Prove it to us. Do a magic trick. The Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Or knowledge, I should say. But human wisdom. And Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To perform all the signs that necessary for man and all the wisdom that's necessary for man. But it says in verse 39... But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now what kind of a sign was this supposed to be? going to be a sign. Okay, a sign of what? What's it a sign of? He told us a little bit about what the sign of Jonah and the whale was, but what's it a sign of? The three days and three nights of the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. If he's down there for three days and three nights, he evidently has to come back, don't he? Or he'd have been down there four days and four nights. And if he hadn't come back, he'd been down there five days and five nights. So he came back and he was only down there for three days and three nights. Now I've got to the place where I really don't care to argue and debate anymore with people about, you know, you know, when he died, I know what I believe and I state it, but I don't care to debate it. Somebody wants to believe something else, go for it. Believe what you want. I'm satisfied with my faith. I own my faith. Nobody else owns it. It's mine. It's what I believe. It's where I'm coming from. So anyway, he makes a statement here in verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation. Why? 
why will this judgment come up against this generation by the men of Nineveh? Why? What is the purpose of him saying such a thing? I believe that there's a possibility that the people in Jesus' day had more light than the people had in Nineveh's day. And yet they repented at the preaching of Jonah. I mean, Jonah was a man. I don't know if he looked bleached when he came out of the well. And after all, he, he might have come running for three whole days. You know, I don't know how long he ran. But he might have looked like, and there might have been witnesses on the seashore that saw him when he come out of that water. Wouldn't that have been interesting? And then he run for three days and he preached to them, warned them. And then what he warned didn't happen because they believed on the Lord. And so um, there's a sign here somewhere. And then he says in verse 41, there's people who have more light than others. I was talking to a guy and I was trying my best to get him to trust the Lord. I went over it and over and over. And I know, I know I was a lot clearer with him than my father-in-law was with me. But I can't swear to it. Because sometimes it depends upon where you are and what you're listening for and whether or not you're being receptive or not or just want to argue. The other day when I was talking to these two ladies behind the counter, and there's just two girls about the same age, and one wanted to do nothing but argue with me. I wanted just to reach over the counter and just slap her jaws and tell her, shut up. The other one just stood there and said, you know, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you can't tell me. And she's the one I says, do you know where you're going to die? I'm saved. Well, after it was all over with, I'm not sure that she was saved. Because you know there's a difference in being just saved and then being really saved and being gloriously saved. You know, there's a difference in being, you know, dead and, you know, really dead and gloriously dead. You're either saved or you're lost. You ever hear people say, that's a born-again Christian. I didn't know there was another kind. If you are a Christian, or a Christian, real Christian, it's because you have been born again. So if you're born again, you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be born again. But who knows where people get their terminology from. But he makes a statement here in verse 41. I want you to look at it. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Why would they condemn this generation? Why would they condemn that generation? What had this generation done that was so bad? They did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So if that's true, is there consequences to our decisions that we make? Even though it, you may live another 20, 30 years before you ever die, before you ever get to this judgment. And then God says that um, you're going to have to give an account for the decisions you're making now. Because he makes this statement, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment and shall condemn it. Well, what right does the men of Nineveh have to condemn this generation? What right do they have to condemn it? Or is it because they can give testimony to the fact that, listen, we only heard it from this one little scrawny guy that came running out of the mouth of a fish. And we believed his message. And look who you had. 
You had the Son of God. You watched Him do all these miracles. You never found any fault in Him. He walked on water. He forgave sins. He made the blind to see and caused the dead to rise and the deaf to hear and the blind to see. And that's not good enough for you? And they'll condemn them because they should have and could have believed. I believe that might be part of the reason why Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chick, and you would not. He didn't say you could not. He said you would not. They would not come to him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But also notice in the last part of verse 41, he makes this statement. For a greater than Jonah is here. I'm greater than Jonah. And they believe Jonah. Why won't you believe me? Isn't it hard sometimes to get people to believe the simple truth? You know that if man was going to devise salvation, and he has, this is where all your religions come from, they always require a man to do something. One way or another, they require him to do something. Based upon how he lives, it's works for salvation. You must earn it. And then the Lord comes along and says, hey, it's free. Oh, you can't tell me that. You mean all I got to do is believe? Yeah, that's all you got to do. No, I'll never believe that in a million years. It's too simple. You got to do something. It's got to be more than just believe. Because it's contrary to man's nature. Man has pride. He has to have that little sense of, well, I did something. I helped. There's nothing for him to do, and he can't stand it. And you just can't stand the idea of thinking that there's people who live worse than you do, and they don't deserve to go to heaven. And you do. Because you live better, and you're better. You know, I've come across a lot of Christians that are Pharisees, a lot of Pharisaical Christians, who think that they're actually better than a lot of other people. And they are very judgmental and critical, condemning, condescending. Because, you know, I don't live like them. They're not as good as me. I go to church. They don't go to church. I'm a Christian. You ain't. And it's amazing how many people, they don't come out and say the words, I'm filled with pride. But they act like it. And they live like it. And sometimes talk like it. Look what he says in verse 42. Even talks about the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, shall condemn it. Why would they condemn it? For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon. Here's Jesus telling these people, hey, you ever heard of Solomon? Well, there's Solomon's temple. Everybody's heard of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. I'm greater than Solomon. It'd be like me walking onto the golf course and say, you know, you ever heard of Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Gary Steffen? I said, I said, who? I said, Gary Steffen and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. And, and I walked and said, you know, I'm better than all of them. I said, sure, right. 
You take the guy that can hit the ball of the furthers. Used to be John Daly, but I think a lot of people can hit it as far as he does now. What if I was to say, you know, I can hit that golf ball further than all of them. What would you want me to do? What? Prove it. You'd want me to prove it. A greater than Jonah is here. Prove it. A greater than Solomon is here. Prove it. He's. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to do something that nobody can do. I'm going to come back in three days. Now, did Jesus already know from the very beginning of his ministry that he was going to die and come back in three days? You think he already knew that? At the beginning of his ministry, now, take your Bible and turn over there to the book of John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Now, this is at the beginning of his ministry. It's right after the first miracle that he did in chapter 2. And he come there to chapter 2, and you'll notice there's something that happened here. You notice what he says in verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? In other words, you just got mad, lost your temperature, temperature, and lost your temper, and went in there and kicks all those people out of there and said all these things. He says, uh, who do you think you are? Give us a sign. So here they're asking for a sign. Now over there in Matthew chapter 12, he was going to give them the sign of the resurrection. I'm going to take and be like Jonah, three days and three nights. Here he makes a statement in verse 18. Oh, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? I mean, these were really spiritual giants. These are those that could really understand, you know, what he was saying. But you and I know they didn't get it. Was he talking about the temple that was standing there? No, he wasn't talking about that temple. See, the very next verse says, but he spake of the temple of his body. So right there in the beginning, he told them that if you destroy this body, because that's all they can do, destroy this body. And then in verse 20, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture. And the word which Jesus had said. So here, he was talking about his resurrection. You see, the resurrection is a great proof. It's the proof of the person of Christ himself, just who he is. And then it is a proof of the promise that he had made. Turn your Bible to the book of John in chapter 11. Just turn on over to your right, uh, chapter 11. So you see... He promised some things. But, uh, you know, there's always people who question and doubt things. But Jesus has a reason why, you know, he might seem to be late. Have you ever prayed to the Lord and it seemed like God just didn't come through? He was just late, late. Lord, if you'd just done this, this wouldn't have happened. Well, it kind of happened here with Mary and Martha. But look what he says down here in verse 19. And many of the Jews came to comfort Mary and Martha concerning their brother. 
Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, if you'd have been here, my brother had not died. So they were thinking that if you would have been here, this would not have happened. You failed us. You let us down. And I guess the question comes in your mind without saying it is, don't you love us? And the Bible says that, yeah, you know, God does love us. But there was a problem here. And sometimes we wonder, well, just why did Jesus weep? Because see there in verse 35, many people believe this is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But in the Greek, it's uh, the one over there in the book of Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. It's a little bit shorter than this verse. But anyway, he said, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. This was some of their people, not all of them. Some says, oh, how he loved them in verse 37. Some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? I mean, if this man can do that, why can't he have done this? And sometimes you wonder, you know, if God did this for me and God did this for me. Why couldn't God have done this for me? And you find out some things God does and sometimes he doesn't do it. I used to wonder why, you know, I was out there in Colorado working my full self that they have trying to find buses and making bids on buses and find I got one for $700 and I loaded it up with kids and took them all the way to camp down in Florida and back, you know. And, and I often wondered, how come I couldn't have got a new bus like Bruce Porter did? He had a guy walk into his church, a multimillionaire, Built him a, got him a, bought him a whole new uh, movie theater and gave him money for brand new buses and all that. And here I am working, you know, like a dog. Have you ever seen dog work? I always wonder about that. I'm about to change that. Working like an ox. Well, anyway. And so it just doesn't seem like God is fair sometimes. After all. I knew, I knew this. I knew that Bruce did not love God any more than me. You ever thought about it? No. They don't love God any more than I do. So why is God being so extra good to them? You know, and I always thought, I really I thought, you know, God's got a lot of kids, but no, I'm his pet child. In my family, there were six kids. Ned was daddy's pet child. It didn't matter what Ned did. She could never do any wrong. She always got me in trouble, and I had to pay the price. But Ned always... Got her away with my dad. She could just wrap him around her finger. Have you ever seen somebody like that that can do that? I had no idea how to do that. I was born without tack. And I have lived without tack. And I'll probably die without tack. Get the point? But anyway, when you consider these things that God says in his word about, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Okay, that's what you said. No, you want to prove it. I am the resurrection. Yeah, I know. In the last day when the resurrection takes place, yeah, okay. And he is going to prove it. So he's going to do something to prove what he says. So God, see, he makes promises. Jesus made promises. And he stated who he was. He told him what he could do. And still people just would not believe. And so he has to give him a little proof. So you look up there in verse 
23, Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Yay! That didn't do it. That didn't do it. I know that later. What they wanted was something now. He would be alive today if you had been here. But no, you had other things to do. You had other people that you had to heal, and other people you had to do this for and all that. You had to go take a walk on water and do all these miracles for everybody. But you could have been here. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have been dead. How do you think Jesus feels when people think about that about him? So he says in verse 24, Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, the last day, but this is not the last day. This is now. And Jesus said unto her, I am. Not going to be, I am the resurrection. Prove it. I am the life. Okay, prove it. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth now, and believeth in me, shall never die. Believest thou this? She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. I believe all of that. And when she had so said, she went her way. But nothing really changed. Nothing's changed. She's still just as sorrowful as ever. Now it's Mary's turn. And when she had said, so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly said, The master had come and called her for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now here she was now. Is she the one that was always sitting at the feet of Jesus? Now she's mourning. And when Jesus was coming, she didn't even get up to go meet him. She just sat there. I think there's somebody could have an attitude problem. I think both of them had an attitude problem. It can happen to anybody when things don't seem like they're going your way. She went to meet him. And then it says there, Verse 31, the Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. See, both of them said the same thing. If, if. But sometimes, you know, God has a, a higher purpose than ours. He doesn't always do what we think he's going to do when we think he ought to do it. He's not somebody that, you know, we put on the string and make him jump to you know, our little tune. That's not the way it works. He's the boss. He, he's the Lord. He's the master. And we're supposed to just accept his will and knowing that he cannot make mistakes. But, you know, sometimes God takes those questionable things that we have and doubts and so forth, and he wants to solve those thoughts in our minds. Sometimes he would be with a crowd and he could read their minds. He says, why do these thoughts arise in your heart? Why do you think like this? You believe in God, believe also in me. And fear not over and over again, all these things. And so he makes a statement down here. Where have you laid him? In verse 34. And then down in verse 38, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself. Now, why was, why was he groaning? Could it be because of their unbelief, their questions, their doubts, or because he loved Lazarus so much? They said, see how he loved him? He loved him so much that it really broke his heart that he died. 
Well, he could have kept him from dying. So I'm not sure I can go with the idea that that showed how much he loved him. Well, he also loved him when he wasn't dead, and he loves him while he is dead, and he's going to still love him when he brings him back to life. So there might be another reason. But, of course, I'd be conjecture. I'm not uh, say this is Yankee's opinion, but it doesn't really say, and so I'd rather, rather not say. So he says here in verse 39, Jesus says, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, uh, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou should have seen the glory of God? So he said something, and he's doing something as a result of what he said. See, his credibility is on the line. You say, I am this, I am not. I can do this now. There's a lot of things we probably believe that God can do. We just don't know if he will do them. We know he's able to do all things but we don't know if he'll do anything in particular. So that's why the closer you are to the Lord, the more confidence that you have in him and the bolder you will be. You start getting further away from the Lord and the questions and doubts that will fill your mind and it'll play a little tune in your little head and you'll get to the place where you're not sure whether you can trust him or not, then you take matters into your own hands. And then you try to make everything happen instead of just trust the Lord, just relax. Because it takes patience. I'll have to be honest with you. I'm not a very patient man. Have y'all noticed that? Y'all haven't noticed that? I hit it very well, didn't I? But I'm not that patient of a man. When I want to do something, when do you think I want to do it? How did you know that? So there's some people that have a lot of patience. And sometimes a person who has a lot of patience, I classify them as a lazy person. They really don't want to do anything anyway. But that's not true. So there's extremes on both sides, but learning how to be patient and waiting upon the Lord, and at the same time where you're waiting, you're working. Occupy. Work till he does come. Wait upon the Lord doesn't mean to sit down and do absolutely nothing. Take your Bible and turn to the book of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and realize that not only the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and his personal testimony, what he says. And then you talk about the promise that he made. And then notice that the power that he has. He has power. Power to do what? Well, he had power to do just about anything. But he says that he did all things by the power of the Holy Spirit. They said you did what you did by the power of Beelzebub. They credited everything that he said and did to the devil himself. And so he says up here in verse 16 of chapter 10, And other sheep I have which I uh, are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now, we know it says over in the book of Peter in chapter 3 and verse 18 that he was quickened by the Spirit. Quickened by the Spirit. Made alive by the Spirit of God. That he would taste death for every man and that you and I would have our sins forgiven. 
but he was quickened and raised again from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then when you read over there in the book of uh, Romans in chapter 8, God hath raised him from the dead. And also there in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, he was quickened by the Holy Spirit. Here he says that he has the power. And look what he says in verse uh, 18. Verse 18 says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. When he says, it is finished, he gave up the Spirit. It wasn't so much, was it taken from him, or did he give it up? And uh, into thy hands I commend my Spirit. I mean, I mean, I can see me laying on the Okay, I'm leaving now. The Lord says, I don't want you now. I'll take you when I'm ready. But he had power. And you notice this word is used twice in this one verse. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. And the power is what this is all about. Because it takes power to do something. Did you know that the word gospel, the power of God, is dynamite? You know what a stick of dynamite can do? Got power. The gospel is powerful. And I think you need to see this. Turn all the way over there to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. In chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll notice that they've already trusted the Lord. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in verse 13. Then he says, I'm going to pray for you. And then notice how he prays for them. Because he says in verse 16, I cease not to pray for you all the time. And he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Two, the eyes of your understanding been enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Three, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God has an inheritance in you. In other words, he has an investment in you, as Obama would say. But anyways, we're moving right along. Look in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? The exceeding greatness of his power. See, in this life, a lot of people demonstrate their power of their wisdom and try to see how much they can accumulate and how they can manipulate and make, you know, great successful uh, decisions in life and become very rich and even uh, aspire to be in a, a president of the United States or some congressman or whatever. You can do a lot of great things in this life, but see... For a man to come back from the dead. Now that's, that's going beyond anything anybody in this world can ever do. That's power that's out of this world. That is what we call supernatural because it's not natural. It's supernatural. And this is supernatural. This is powerful. Because you see, if you knew you had the power to come back from the dead, why would you fear death? You see, we just never did it before. We just don't want to hurt. Especially me. I, I'm a whiner. You know, I can hang down. I, I got to go to the emergency room. 
Well, not maybe that bad, but almost. But look what he says here in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, and get this, when he raised him from the dead. The power that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead was supernatural power, and that's the power that you and I have in our lives to live a supernatural life. Do you get it? I mean, that's what he said. But we can't believe what he says, can we? Did you know it takes supernatural power to overcome the lust of the flesh? Look what he says there in another verse. Right there in Ephesians in chapter 3. Look what he says in verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And here's those words. According to the power that worketh in us. So we have the power of God living within us. Mighty power living within us. The power to do what God wants us to do. To live a supernatural life. We got the power to do it. But here he's talking about according to the power that worketh in us. Not all of God's power is probably working in all of God's children. We limit the Holy One. We limit His working in us and through us and on us. What if we could get totally out of the way? What if we could get totally out of the way of the Lord working through us? And we didn't challenge Him. We didn't argue with Him. We didn't debate it with Him. We just believed Him and see what God can do. Wouldn't it be awesome? I think it would be awesome. Look at this last verse over here in the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans in chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, talking about life and death, talking about carnal-minded and spiritually-minded, talking about how that we can fulfill the righteousness of the law. It's not to be by us, but it is to be through us. The Holy Spirit working within us. And he makes this statement down here in verse 10. And if, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life. Life. And this life is this new birth that we have. And then to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we have divine power living within us. But we limit the working of the Lord. Just like when Christ was here, literally, he had the power to do all those miracles. But it says he did not many miracles in certain places because of their unbelief. Now, with God's children, though the power is there, is it possible that some things are not done in your life because of unbelief? You just don't believe he will anyway. And you question God and you doubt God and you worry and whine and pine and moan and groan. Nobody loves me. Yeah. Then look what he says in verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Dwell where? Dwell where? Dwell in us, in you. 
He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, your mortal body is not the body that's dead. A mortal body is the body that's still alive. And that God can quicken these mortal bodies one of these days, and it'll be fashioned into his glorious body, and there's a possibility that we may be around when the Lord returns. And we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The power that transformed his body into a glorious body is the same power that lives within us and is going to change our vile bodies and make it like unto his glorious body. Uh, that day is coming. And this is something to think about and be thankful to the Lord for. In our last verse, it just makes this statement. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I'll just read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ came back from the dead, we have a living hope because our hope is in a living Savior. If he was still dead, we would have a dead hope. But because he's alive, we have a living hope. Look up here. For you that's never seen this before. It's a brand new illustration. I was coming down from Georgia on Friday and I said, Lord, give me something new. And all of a sudden this angel appeared on this cloud. He said, let this hand represent you and me. I said, that'll work. So let this hand represent you and me. This wallet represents sin. We all have sin on us. Now God says he loves us. He don't like what we do wrong, but he loves us. But the Bible says that for us to pay for sin eternal separation from God. And we're all sinners. So to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. And none of us are perfect. We're all sinners, and sinners can't get in. So Christ says, you cannot save yourself. You'll never be good enough to save yourself. You say, I'm pretty good. There is no pretty good heaven either. You have to be perfect, not one sin. So unless you can think of that you never sinned in your whole life, and if you think that, I want to meet your mother and dad. I'd venture to say that every one of you got, well, you probably should have got more than you did. But all have sinned and come short of God's perfection. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He came into the world because he loved his father. And he says that the world may know, the world may know that I, Christ, that I love the father. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he says, because I love you, hates the sin, because it separates us from him. Christ took the sin, paid for it on the cross, and came back from the dead, and said that whosoever would believe that he did that for them, he died for you. He puts this payment to your account. That means your sins are paid that's why he says, go into all the world and preach the forgiveness of sins. All your sins can be forgiven because the debt has been paid. And so if you'll believe he did that for you, this payment put to your account, and the reason you can't go to hell is because you don't have any sins to pay for. 
He paid for all of them. He paid for all the sins before the cross and all the sins after the cross. And he paid for them on the cross for all sins. So all of our sins he paid for came back from the dead. And he is our proof of payment. Christ rose again. And therefore, if you will trust Jesus Christ as your Savior to save you from hell, He will give you as a free gift everlasting life. Everlasting life is not something you earn or work for. It's the gift of God. And so when He gives you eternal life, if it's eternal life, how long do you think eternal life would last? I know this is a difficult question. It's like when was the war of 1812, you know. So when you trust Christ as Savior, He gives you eternal life. All your sins are paid. Where would you go when you die? To heaven. So can you know that you're going to heaven before you die? Yes. That's what it's all about. I'm so glad I do not have to wait till someday in the future, in some judgment to find out, well, I sure got to sweat it out. I hope I made it. I hope my good outweighs my bad. No. I got it made. In the shade. All because of what Christ did for me. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you write down the quietness of this moment? Just talk to the Lord and say something simple like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done things wrong. I never quite understood before, but today, this morning, it makes sense to me. And I want to go to heaven when I die. And I believe that when Christ died, I believe He died for me. He paid for my sins. And I'm going to trust Him right now as the one that paid for mine. I'm going to trust Him as my Savior. And friend, if you'll do that with a head bowed, eyes closed, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come forward or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. Raise your hand just lets me know that what I said made sense to you. And I'd just like to have prayer for you. Yes, God bless you, ma'am. Anyone else? You can put it down. Just slip it up. God bless you, ma'am. Just slip it up very quickly and put it right back down. By that you mean just pray for me. I will accept Christ as my Savior. I want to be certain of going to heaven when I die. Anyone else? Anyone else? Our Father, we do thank you so much for the good judgment of these that indicated by an uplifted hand that they would trust your Savior. By doing so, they become your children, your children forever. That payment you made is put to their account. All their sins are paid. They go to heaven because of what you did for them. And Father, we pray that because we're your children, yes, you want us to live like your children, to walk with you and to talk to you. You want to bless us. And Father, we pray that each one of us realize that our labor, our service is not in vain. Because you came back from the dead, we shall live also. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Bless each one. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.